Welcome to the second season of Reset the Table. Russia's war in Ukraine affects agricultural markets and threatens food security for millions around the world. The UN Food System Summit is behind us, and COP27 and the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health are upon us. Join us as we examine solutions to food insecurity challenges around the world and right here at home. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Joe Puri, Associate Vice President of the Strategy and Knowledge Department at the International Fund for Agricultural Development, or EFAD. She also currently teaches at Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs as an Associate Adjunct Professor, building on her past work at the Green Climate Fund, the UN Environment Program, the World Bank, and the UN Development Program. We're very pleased to have Joe joining us today from Des Moines, Iowa, where she is helping to celebrate the 2022 World Food Prize. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here, Caitlin. Thank you. A pleasure to host you, Joe. First question for you, EFAD. What is EFAD and what do you do? Yeah, great question to start with. So EFAD, as you said, is the International Fund for Agricultural Development. So we are both a UN agency as well as an international financing institution or an IFI. And that's what makes us different. It means that unlike other UN agencies, we have loans to governments. So these are sovereign loans, but we also do non-sovereign loans and these need to be repaid. But on the positive side, what this also means is that governments need to want the resources that we provide. We work in agricultural development and in rural spaces, and we work specifically with smallholder farmers and rural populations because we see rural populations and rural areas and geographies as having large potential for growth and really providing the kind of gravitational pull that is required to make food systems and agricultural systems resilient so that we can essentially build a far more resilient globe. Why are we different from the Food and Agriculture Organization or the World Food Program is the other two organizations are essentially UN organizations. The FAO sets what are called the normative standards in the food and agriculture space. And WFP is a humanitarian agency, so it goes in for emergencies. EFAD, because it is an IFI, we can borrow from the market, but we can also lend. And more than 90% of our overall portfolio is a lending portfolio. One third of our overall core funding is essentially repayment on loans. And then one third is co-financing. And then one third is our core financing. So that's what makes up the approximate $8 billion that we essentially put out every three years. And this is in developing countries. We work in almost 100 countries and we've got approximately 210 investments currently under implementation. As a UN organization, it also makes us special because while we are working to provide these loans, to governments. We are also concentrating on things such as equity and justice, because as a UN organization, our focus is on the marginalized few and the marginalized poor. And so equity and justice becomes a really important part of not just our safeguard policies, but also of our policies and our investments that we put out. So it actually puts us sort of a sharp, fairly tense space, which is on one side, we've got to ensure that there are loan repayments, so we should only be working in zero risk spaces. But on the other side, because we are a UN agency, we actually have to go into places that other organizations do not work so much with, that is the marginalized, the poor geographies of the world. 
I am the Associate Vice President of Strategy and Knowledge, and it's really a fantastic position because not just in terms of strategy, so we direct as overall strategy externally, and we work internally to essentially articulate that. We are also responsible for curating knowledge so that it can really be used to inform our investments across the world. But very importantly, we are also the technical lead within EFAD, which means that all of the investments at EFAD are the technical leadership is provided by my department and my staff. Thank you, Joe. And that came out uh, in a conversation that we had earlier this year. You talked about EFAD's monitoring and evaluation model in particular that attracted you to work for EFAD. And you even said that there's no evidence globally that official development assistance has a positive impact because there's no counterfactual. Talk to us about what you mean by that. And then also about EFAD's M&E system that you have so much faith in. You know, a lot of people think of M&E as this non-sexy part. I think it's one of the most exciting parts. So, and it really speaks to the credit of what EFAD does, and it really distinguishes us from everything else. Now, let me start at the genesis of this question that you asked. In 2006, actually, there was a big study that came out from the Center for Global Development, which said, when will we ever learn? And it really rooted the fact and mm. the fact that even though official development assistance had been going on for almost 50 years or more, we still didn't know in an attributable sense of the word as to how much difference it was making to the economic growth of countries or to the welfare of people. And it really spoke about what is the burden of evidence that the world and especially multilateral institutions must adhere to to make ourselves far more credible. Now fast forward to what IFA does. So IFA does a few things. One of the key things that I'm really proud of is the measurement work that we do in terms of impact assessment. That, of course, is something that is also led by my department within EFAD, where we essentially provide technical leadership on all of the investments that we do in the 100 countries. But the impact assessments essentially set up counterfactuals. We'd want to understand as to what is the effect of a pill, say, in health, or a certain process in education, or even certain procedures in agriculture. You want to understand as to whether a dollar that has been put or invested on the ground is actually creating a difference, or whether that difference would have been made anyway, mm-hmm. even without the mm-hmm. And so having a counterfactual set up so that we can understand what would have happened in the absence of that investment is really important. What we do in our impact assessment, so we look at 15% of our portfolio is essentially chosen to be representative of the entire $8 billion. And I'm very excited to also report that those impact assessments tell us we are now able to say whether we made a difference compared to what would have happened had EFAT investments not gone in, how much was that difference, who did we make a difference for, and under what circumstances. And that, I think, is really the bar that we've got to set for development assistance that we put out there. This is not something that most institutions do. I certainly agree. Just to clarify, so you're saying that what you're evaluating through your M&E portfolio, it's 15% of EFAD's projects globally, and it's representative of all EFAD's projects. So it's really important to to know that it's representative. Okay, interesting. So for a representative sample of EFAD's investments, you set up counterfactuals. Does that present ethical problems? How do you do that? So we do exposed evaluations. So which means that our counterfactuals basically get set up because we use GIS data, we use administrative data, and we use national databases to then set up these counterfactuals towards the end of the project. Yeah, we're talking in the theoretical. Give us an example of one project where toward the end of the project, you're able to set up the counterfactual and tell us the results of your analysis. 
Well, from Lesotho to Pakistan to India to Tajikistan. So in our case, we chose 24 projects and we did what's called a balance test. So we tried to understand in the counterfactual that was chosen for 31 indicators. These are all attributes of the populations. What were the indicators in our project sample or in our target sample? compared to what was existing in the counterfactual. But when you look at the differences and you do a T-statistic or a test for the differences between the means of those attributes. So suppose I wanted to take poverty levels, I wanted to understand ethnicity, I wanted to understand food insecurity levels, I wanted to understand household asset levels. And what do we find? So we look at our EFAD level impact indicator is essentially economic mobility. And Mm. then we look at income, we look at market access, and we look at resilience, and we also look at nutrition. Now, this is the power of also doing really rigorous and credible work. It helps us to understand where we are not doing a good job and where we are. First, the headline results. We were able to increase by 10% the economic mobility on average of the populations that we were targeting. We were able to improve by 20% the income of the populations that we were targeting, 20% the market access of the populations that we were targeting, and by 10% the resilience of the populations that we were targeting. These were good results. And we were able to show that a lot of this was even greater than the target that we had initially set. Mm. So for example, we had set a target of 44 million people that we would essentially improve the income of by 10%. We actually were at closer to 65 million. So we exceeded our targets. But we also know from those areas where we did not do well. And at a meta level, what we found, for example, that in nutrition, we had targeted that we would improve the nutrition of our targeted populations by 12%. We only managed a 1% increase in nutrition Mm. of our population. We know that changing nutrition patterns essentially requires a long-term behavior change. So what we did find was that food-related expenditures did increase by 11% amongst the populations that we were targeting. Mm -hmm. So that should have shown an increase in nutrition. But what we did not find was that there was no difference in the household dietary diversity score. So households were not diversifying their foods, even though their incomes were increasing and they were becoming far more resilient. So that's clearly something that we've got to change if we want to do well on nutrition. But I just want to highlight your main point, which is that investments in agriculture didn't automatically translate to improved nutrition. It's very, very important to note that. But I want to dig into what you said about the fact that you saw improvements in resilience. This is something that EFAD's president, Alvaro Lario, who we were very honored to host at CSIS recently. He was very proud of the fact that EFAD improves resilience in the communities in which you invest. How do you define it? How do you measure it? So resilience is defined as the ability to either maintain or recover. So the way we recover from an event, the genesis of this was that we would want to look at climate resilience, but very quickly we realized that climate resilience is not the only source of resilience that we want to look at because we know that vulnerability to prices, vulnerability to other external shocks is also going to be amplified when a climate shock occurs. We were then able to then say there are sources of vulnerability and these shocks can be either climate or non-climate and price and or economic related. So then we ask people the question, did you suffer a shock of any kind? And then there's a whole list. Mm-hmm. If you suffered a shock after the fat investment where you worse off the same or better off, and then mm-hmm. there are a whole host of questions as to how they were able to deal with the shock. 
But that question ability to either maintain or to recover to their previous condition before the shock essentially gives us a way to then understand. So we've sure. got that in that question. And then using that, we've created the resilience metric, which is essentially the ability to recover. Mm-hmm. We are able to use that metric irrespective of what the context is. So we can have a project in Bangladesh. We can have a project in India that has been hit by a typhoon. We can also have a project in Tajikistan or we can have a project in Ghana. But that ability to recover index and it is an mm-hmm. index then helps us to standardize the measure across different contexts. And that's what we are really excited about because one, it lets us understand as to whether we are improving the resilience of the populations that we are working. It also helps us to understand what are the possible drivers. And we are also able to say how much we were able to improve the resilience of populations by. And we found that we were able to improve the resilience of populations by 10% for 13% of the target population, which is far higher than what we had initially anticipated. So we can set up like 100 households and if only 50 have suffered a shock, then that means we're only looking at 50 households. So that's one. But the second thing is also that it allows us to set up what is called a resilience index that we now want to think about monetizing and to think about a resilience credit around that can be traded much like a carbon credit. Can you tell us, and I don't know if this is something you published or not, but are you finding that across these places where you have observed improved resilience, that there are common elements to your programming, that where we have done X, Y, and Z, we've seen improvements in resilience? So one, we know that if we have what are called Christmas tree projects, we're trying to target everything. It never works because implementation fails. The idea is really good, but projects can fail either because of bad ideas or bad implementation or both. So clearly a key thing for us to ensure is that we don't have too many impact pathways. But the second thing is that clearly when we focus on value chain investments, so this is essentially going from production all the way to market, and we focus on the entire value chain, those investments usually are successful in getting resilience. And that means that we are looking not just at the production, but also at midstream investments. And midstream investments require infrastructure investments, but they also require investments in capacity for ICT, for example. They also require investments in women, for example, and women's empowerment. And they also require investments in things that you would call social protection, but are clearly a part of what is EFAD's quiver of arrows, which is that we've got to think about graduating from ultra poverty. I think that resilience is something that we talk about that can mean so many different things to so many different people. And at the end of the day, it doesn't mean anything. But thank you for helping us understand what you mean by it and explain what you've observed improves resilience. I want to turn now to a couple of major events happening. As I mentioned, you're joining us from Des Moines, Iowa, helping celebrate the delivery of this year's World Food Prize. How's it going in Des Moines? It's really exciting, Caitlin. As I said, you know, before the podcast started, this is my first time at the World Food Prize event. And what I find quite exciting, actually, is the very solutions-driven conversations that one is having with a diversity of actors. So it's not Mm. just the U.S. government or other multilateral agencies that are here, but there's also a significant presence of the private sector. And my initial hypothesis coming here was that, oh, I would find a lot of the private sector directing its attention to the United States. But it's quite surprising. I mean, there's a huge percentage also of the private sector that's really interested in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America. I find that very exciting. But most of all, I think I really appreciate how everyone appreciates that, yes, we're in a 3C world. 
the COVID conflict and climate world, but we've got to find solutions and we are all talking about solutions here. Another major event coming up is COP27. It will be held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. And I know that IFAD has high hopes for outcomes of this year's COP. In past years, food and agriculture have been discussed as ancillary issues. And this year, they're going to be central to discussions. And also, we hope next year and next year's COP that will be hosted in the UAE. Can you give us a sense for what IFAD does hope to accomplish, particularly around supporting rural food producers' ability to adapt to climate change? I do want to say that not just for EFAD, but I do think that the success of this COP will be if we can translate some of the commitments that were made at COP26 into some credible implementation. I'd say it is a credibility COP. So one is that for EFAD, what will be really important is to ensure that some of those commitments are translating into commitments on the ground in terms of resources, into specific commitments with respect to smallholder producers that cultivate plots of land less than two to three hectares are also producing one third of the overall land food. But it's really important to recognize that less than 2% of the new and additional climate finance is directed to them. So you hope to see a sea change in that. But the key thing is that this COP is also meant to be an adaptation COP. So the focus is very much on adaptation. And from my perspective, an important success for this COP has to be, you know, moving the needle really on adaptation in terms of commitments coming from the private sector as well as from the public sector. I think in the new and additional climate finance that we've seen, the private sector has almost been missing with respect to adaptation. I think IFAD is exceptionally well positioned to think of blended finance solutions and to think of structured finance solutions where we can set up first class facilities, but while guaranteeing the market rates of return to private sector actors, while ensuring that they are able to invest in a portfolio of investments in developing countries that are going to improve the resilience of the populations there. So we bring the credibility, we bring in the ability to do structured finance, we bring in also the platform to bring in the private sector. What we do require now are, you know, these private sector actors to come along to think of how to pool capital so that we can provide those solutions. And this is where I am also keen to see as to how we can take the resilience monetization idea to fruition. The government of Egypt and a few other private sector as well as philanthropy organizations are quite interested in engaging with us to see as to how we might structure such an idea so that we are able to create a new market very much like a carbon market that can then result in credits that get traded as well. And if we are able to sort of take that forward, it would be really quite special to see private sector as well as public sector resources being blended to ensure that we are able to generate a part public good, but definitely a private good as well. So this is something akin to a carbon market, but having to do with climate change adaptation among producers. Can you explain that a little bit more? So it is akin to a carbon market, but remember what happens in a carbon market. So a carbon market, actually, if you go back 15 years, a carbon market was almost something you could not envision. People would poo-poo the idea that, oh, we're going to sequester carbon. Why will someone pay for it? And why will it matter to me? We are reducing the amount of carbon in the atmosphere because I don't benefit from it. And on the other side, we have the things that we trade, that you and I trade, diamonds, toothpaste, etc., are things that give us benefit, right? So now think of adaptation or resilience, and I'm deliberately using the words in an interchangeable way, that have both a public as well as a private good attribute to them. Resilience or adaptation helps the smallholder farmer to become more resilient. That's the private good nature to it. But 
by ensuring that these are low emission climate resilient strategies to help farmers become more resilient. You're also helping the local economy and the local ecosystem because that means that you're being environmentally sustainable. You're also being socially equitable and you're also reducing the debt burden on the government, which now no longer has to provide social protection to mm. save those small producers and rural populations. So you have both a public good as well as a private good nature to it, right? You're reducing mm-hmm. the national mm-hmm. debt and you're improving the resilience of farmers. And for those investors who are investing in these geographies, you're essentially ensuring that, yes, they are able to invest in a long term and you're able to ensure their investments. So that's on one side. How would you structure it? So think of it right from the beginning. One of the key things that prevents private investors from coming in into rural economies and into adaptation action is that they have to work with a whole spectrum of actors in rural economies that are heterogeneous, that are high risk, that you don't know. So there's no KYC or know your customer that exists for them. IFAD works with farmers organizations, with small and medium enterprises. And in these rural economies, we know them extremely well. And we work with sovereign as well as non-sovereign actors to essentially know our rural populations extremely well. We then work with these farmers organizations, with these community-based organizations to aggregate their production, which gives us economies of scale, and also help them to work with local and regional off-takers who buy their produce from them. So that gives us economies of scale in all of these transactions. What makes this interesting is that when we engage with the smallholder farmers, we also engage on nature-based solutions or agroecological solutions on ensuring that, yes, their investments and their processes on the ground are actually, say, zero till or are really good for the environment. So that helps us ensure that not only is this resilience being built now, but it's also long term. Now, if investors are coming in and they are interested in seeing not just returns on their investments, but we can also work with them to put their money where their mouths are on resilience. We can help to verify that because we've got the measurement systems and ensure that with their investment, not only are they getting market or a little bit lesser than market rates of return on their investment, but they're also getting resilience as an output from their investment. So let's say now that we are able to improve resilience by 10%. And maybe that generates 100 resilience credits. They get 100 resilience credits in return for that, which they can trade with someone like you who might be interested in also seeing the world become far more resilient and a price gets created. Resilience credits, a resilience market. That's very, very interesting. Joe, as one of our final questions, can you explain to us EFAD's priorities as relate to climate change and biodiversity, particularly in light of the upcoming biodiversity COP in Montreal? So now, as you know, COP15 is also coming up in December. And not only does it have a climate strategy, but we also have a biodiversity strategy that will also commit to investments that are making rural areas and rural geographies resilient. So it's not just people, but the geographies themselves. And clearly, biodiversity is a really important part of it. As part of that evolution of the EFAD, We also have a core indicator that has now become attached to our results framework that is tracking biodiversity in the areas that we invest in. And this looks at mean species abundance as well as area of intact biodiversity. 
So these two core indicators will now become part of EPAD's DNA as we go forward. And this will essentially help us to also ensure that as we work progressively with impact investors, with foundations, as well as with the private sector that's interested in resilience, that the connections between climate, biodiversity, nutrition, and overall agricultural production, and of course, food, are all non-siloed, that we are able to bring about these impacts in an integrated whole. And just to summarize for our audience, what is the importance of biodiversity for agriculture and what's the importance of biodiversity for food security generally? One of the key things that you may have heard of is also soil carbon, right? Soil carbon gets protected when the biodiversity content is extremely high. So not only does it ensure that our resilience today is preserved, but ensuring that we are also investing in biodiversity means that we are able to make the globe far more resilient. Climate biodiversity are somewhat artificial partitions of an already mm. pretty integrated globe. And so what mm-hmm. we want to do with that is to commit ourselves to ensuring that biodiversity is then in nature-based solutions with agroecology and 80% of our overall portfolio does have an agroecology component. So we want to ensure that we are focusing on making these rural economies and rural areas far more resilient by ensuring that climate, biodiversity, environment, nutrition, youth, women's rights, indigenous people, and agricultural production all come together because we cannot afford to think in silos. Dopori, this is a perfect place to end. Thank you for highlighting the importance of EFAD's investments, what it is that makes EFAD different from its peers, if you would even say that it has peers, and explaining EFAD's priorities when it comes to climate change and biodiversity having to do with some big upcoming events. So thank you so much for joining us. EFAD is lucky to have you and would love to have you back in a few months to talk about results of these events that we're talking about. Thank you so much for having me here, Caitlin. And just um, just to say, EFAD punches above its weight class and we hope you continue to do that. Thanks. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.